This is They Create Worlds, episode 198, The History of Handheld Games, part one. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Alex. Hello. And you're not just joined by your co-host, Alex, today. We are also joined by the Interwebs. Yes, we are. Hello, people out there in the audience. Live. You can cheer or something. I might add a sound effect or something here. He does that sometimes. Note to editing, Jeffrey. Add sound effect here. <laughs> That's right. It is our annual live stream. This is still a real episode, of course, as they always are, though there might be some weird breaks and pauses there to acknowledge stuff going on out in the world, which there usually isn't. But we are doing our big three-part live stream recorded look at the handheld game market from its very beginnings all the way up to what's essentially its very end, though. Things will get much vaguer as we get closer to the present, and uh, we don't have a lot of context for things that have happened yet. But Alex, there was only the one handheld, the Game Boy. We did, like, this Gunpei Yokoi episode, we did this Game Boy episode, and then we did something about Tiger Electronics. We've never done a Game Boy or a Tiger Electronics episode. What are you talking about? Okay, fine. There are too many episodes. I can't remember anymore. Oh my goodness, no, we have barely touched on handheld games at all, which is why this is a great topic to do a big three-part episode on, because we've somehow managed to almost completely avoid it. We did do a Yokoi episode, wasn't really focused on the Game Boy, but it came up a little, and of course, everything we thought we knew about the Game Boy back then, it turns out, is wrong, so Game Boy is going to be a huge focus of what we talk about uh, today, though... Not in this episode, for those of you listening to it after the fact. That will be in episode 199, episode 2 of this whole rigmarole. Then, of course, it wraps up in episode 200. What? How did we get to 200 episodes? I don't recall getting a memo. No one told me that we were going to start recording and doing things and saying stuff, and then I'd get to 200. Right. I know. It's it's absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, two episodes a month, every month, since September 2015. We have not missed a single episode. We almost did once. It's all your fault. But we don't talk about that. That's okay. So, yes, uh, apparently, if you do two episodes a month every month since September 2015, then uh, by December of uh, 2023, you have reached 200 episodes. Fun fact. Okay, so five, six, seven, eight. Okay, eight years. Add eight to 2023. So 2031, 2032, we're going to have 400. Ah, something like that. <laughs> Thank you, Dale, for that love for citing apologies. Little pro tip for those of you doing historical writing at home. No matter how much you hate footnotes, and believe me, I hate footnotes, don't save them all to the end, especially if you have 2,000 of them. 
You'll hate yourself later. So much hate. But the book's cool. Yes, the book is cool. I, I have written a book. It's right behind me. Let's go see. We're going on a field trip, kid. Alex is getting up, going through the great vault, walking back to the chair, and then presenting the book. That's right. Uh, I realize this is a podcast, you people listening, but do remember we're also doing a live stream, so this, this isn't as ridiculous as it sounds. But there she is. They create worlds. The story of the people and companies that, uh, that did what? What did they do? Shaped the video game industry. That's what they did. I know my own subtitles. Story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry. This thing is pretty big. It is uh, 586 pages officially. It can feed a family of four for a winter. (laughs) And if you get a second one, you can use that to keep your family warm for the winter. So they are great survival tools. Oh, no. Someone asked the question. I feel like George R. R. Martin now. <laughs> When's the second one? <laughs> That's an excellent question, and it's one worth taking a second to give a non-answer to. Originally, I had a very ambitious plan to get one of these done every two years. Now, the first one, I started writing much earlier than that, but I was hopeful that I would get the next ones out. <laughs> you know, at this point, I could probably finish Winds of Winter before George R. R. Martin could. Maybe, maybe I just should. It won't be any good. I'm not a good fiction writer, but, you know, maybe I just should. Why not? I felt that was reasonable as a time frame because I've been researching all of them simultaneously the whole time. So it's, it's not like I was just researching up to 1982. I've been doing interviews, collecting documents, rating newspaper archives, etc. all along. The plan was... This one came out in 2019. The hope was to have the next one out in 2021, and then the next one out in 2023. Well, funny thing happened between uh, November 2019, when this was released, and 2021. Turns out there was a global pandemic. Who knew? Now, obviously, that would seem like the perfect time to get some writing done. (laughs) After all, you're stuck at home, not doing much. You would think, and you would, in theory, be correct, but the problem is... There was some research that I really needed to get done, some archival sources. One of the things that I think makes Volume 1 really stand out compared to other sources, just in terms of the information it's able to present, is all of the court case material that was collected by a a variety of people, including Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, Play History, for those of you in the Twitch chat, had gathered on some of the early patent lawsuits and copyright lawsuits, uh, most notably the Magnavox lawsuit, but also some other lawsuits as well. Those depositions and trial transcripts gave some insights into areas of video game history that we just did not have a lot of insight into otherwise. With Volume 2, I'm moving into material that people think they know really well. The first book, it's a lot of material that people don't think they know very well. People may know a bit about the VCS or the Intellivision or Space Invaders, but they don't necessarily know about the really early arcade game development, some of those companies. So it was relatively easy to write a book that had new info that most people hadn't seen. It gets harder when you get into this period of the crash and Nintendo and Sega to come up with unique perspectives. And I think I have. If you've been listening to the podcast, you've already heard me give some of these unique perspectives on companies like Nintendo and Sega. 
I really felt I had to go the extra mile to not just be retelling stories, and that involved getting into some more archival materials, some of the Nintendo lawsuits especially, in order to be able to do that work. And obviously, COVID completely sabotaged any ability to engage with those sources, which just caused me to put it off more and more and more. It's gonna be at least another year or two before the next one comes out. My publisher's fine. They're cool. It's not like they're relying on me to make their quarter, believe me. (laughs) I'm a drop in their bucket. Uh, You know, I I get a little money out of it. I obviously make enough that they haven't said, uh, no, thank you, on second thought, we won't do those second and third books. But they're fine. I mean, occasionally they're like, so, uh, you know, where are you? And I'm like, "Uh, not much. And they're like, okay. So they're fine. I'm not going to get dropped by the publisher uh, anytime soon. You know, ask when it hasn't come out in five more years and we'll see. But it'll be another year or two before Volume 2 comes out. But I'm still totally committed to Volume 2. So that has definitely not been canceled. I still think there's a great degree of probability that I will beat the Winds of Winter. We'll see. We'll see if Westeros freezes over before Alex gets his second book done or not. That was a long-winded answer, but this is They Create Worlds. I mean, if you were expecting something short and concise, then you haven't been around very much. And thanks, other Alex. I very much am, uh, (laughs) can't wait for it to be done as well, believe me. So that's the book. But we're not here for the book. We're here for handheld video games. That's right. Where do we start off this story? Do we start off? With the Game Boy, do we start off with Tiger Electronics, Mattel Electronics, those interesting football games that we just stare at the blinky lights and go, am I winning? Am I losing? I can't tell anymore what's going on. No, we we don't start with any of those things. We have to go back further than that. We always have to go back further than that, where they create worlds. We never come at things the easy way. We need to start not with games at all, but the technology that really fueled the entire existence of handheld games in the first place. Transistors? Yes, but also no. That is, of course, the calculator. Because it was the calculator, and specifically the handheld calculator, that created the form factor that would influence the very first handheld games which progressed the display technologies that fueled all of the handheld games, and which got the public very interested in fiddling around with a little electronic device just for fun. Now, we won't go back through the entire history of the calculator industry. We could, but we're not going to. We're not going to go back to the early 20th century adding machines and Burroughs Corporation and British firms, and Olivetti, and all of that kind of stuff. But we do need to start with the beginning of the pocket calculator, because just as computers went through a rapid period of technological innovation and miniaturization, so too did the calculator. The calculator started as really the adding machine, these big mechanical devices with rows of buttons and a lever that was used by banking clerks and office workers, proceeded from there to slowly move on to electromechanical technology and then electronic technology, very similar to the way the computer was progressing at the same time. Because, of course, a calculator is, in a way, a computer. 
it's all kind of part of the same family tree. Our real starting point is when we get to the point where instead of a calculator being a thing that you need to place on a desk in order to use, calculators were never gigantic, but they were desktop devices. They did not fit in your pocket. We have to get to the point where we get to handheld pocket calculators. The reason that this happens is, quite frankly, because of the need to commercialize the integrated circuit. So yes, to answer your questions, transistors are also a big part of this story. Because electronics, of course, in the very beginning, it was all tube-based technology. Tubes had a lot of problems. They were bulky. They ran hot. They consumed a lot of power. They wore out alarmingly quickly through use, especially when powering them on and off. They were prone to burnout. So there were a lot of problems with them, but there was one thing that was not a problem with them, and and that is that by the middle of the 20th century, they were pretty darn cheap. Transistors were coming along, first uh, pioneered and invented at the end of the 1940s, 1947, and then through the late 40s and early 1950s, refined into a kind of usable format. Transistors were a lot smaller, a lot less power-hungry, a lot more reliable. They would allow for a smaller footprint for electronics, but the problem with them, of course, is as a new technology, they were very expensive. And as a result, the only real customer for the early transistors was the military-industrial complex, which was working on rocketry and other military technologies that needed really small and durable components. That was great to get a little industry going, but it wasn't great for driving down the price of these things, because you get price down through volume. While the military needed a few, they didn't need enough to really drive mass market volume. And so at Texas Instruments, which was one of the leading companies in transistors and the first company to uh, solve the problem of the silicon transistor using silicon instead of germanium, which was a better semiconducting material, the head of manufacturing production there, Patrick Haggerty, came up with the idea of developing a consumer product, something that he felt would get consumers excited as a way of driving consumer quantities of transistors. This is why he had his people come up with the first transistor radio in about 1954. The transistor radio was actually, in a lot of ways, inferior to tube radios at that time. Obviously, that didn't stay that way, but at that time, they were somewhat inferior. But the novelty of it really appealed to people. So the transistor radio, while it didn't completely light the world on fire at the beginning, did what it was set out to do, which was drive consumer adoption of transistor products, drive down the price of transistors, and start manufacturing at massive consumer levels. So now, flash forward to 1965, and you have a similar thing going on with integrated circuits. Integrated circuits, where you get a lot of transistors on a single chip, have come in to be more reliable and smaller and all of these things, again, than having discrete transistors on a product. But again, the only real clients for it are government clients. They're going into the latest intercontinental ballistic missiles, like the Minuteman. They're also being bought in large quantities by a little thing called the Apollo Space Program. However, they're really not being used outside of that military-industrial complex. 
TI is once again one of the leaders in the field. The integrated circuit was kind of invented there, but not really. It was invented in 1958 by a TI engineer named Jack Kilby. However, Kilby's prototype version wasn't practical because it still had wires on it. It took Fairchild Semiconductor and Robert Noyce coming up with the so-called planar process to be able to etch the circuitry directly onto the chip itself to make the integrated circuit practical. So they kind of invented it, though Fairchild was really the one that made it practical. But TI was one of the leaders. They were right there from the beginning. So once again, Patrick Haggerty is thinking to himself, I've got to figure out a consumer product that will use integrated circuits, get people interested in IC products, and again, drive down the prices, drive the volume up, and everybody makes a lot more money. On a plane ride with Kilby, the inventor or co-inventor of the integrated circuit, they start brainstorming what kind of consumer product they should make. Obviously, it's going to need to be something miniaturized. The whole point of what's going to make ICs attractive over discrete transistors is the same thing that made discrete transistors more desirable than vacuum tubes, which is that your technology can get smaller. So they know they need to make something really, really compact that's going to really show the difference between what you can do with a transistor and integrated circuit. So they bandy about a few ideas like a dictaphone the size of a lipstick case or something. But then they finally hit on the best idea would be a calculator that is truly a pocket calculator. Computation at this time using a calculator, it's, it's a pain. You have to use a big calculator plugged into a desk. If you're an engineer on the go, you're not hauling that around. You're still using your slide rule for everything. Now, getting a calculator to a pocket size is not going to immediately eliminate the slide rule because we still need a calculator that can do scientific functions before we get there. But you often are not seated at a desk when you need a calculator. You're out in the world doing something. While they're useful in certain professions, like for CPAs or bank clerks that are doing all their work at a desk, they're not practical for the average consumer. They're not practical for engineers all of the time because these people are actually out there doing things. Creator Gaming says, I'm an engineer and I still have a slide rule. More power to you. Old school right there. You never know when those EMPs will hit. That's right. You are ready for the, uh, the post-apocalyptic world. You will still be able to math. They decide that the best thing to do is create a pocket calculator using integrated circuits. So Kilby goes away, gets a team together, and they spend the next two years working on this problem. Turns out that TI, for whatever reason, I don't know the history behind this, but they often name their prototypes after universities. That's just a common practice that they had, just like Atari is well known for the fact that it named its prototypes after pretty ladies. So they decided, without even thinking about it, which is kind of funny, they decided that they would name this after the California Institute of Technology, which is Caltech for short. According to Kilby, they weren't even thinking about the fact that Cal is, you know, you can't spell calculator without Cal. But it ended up being a name that really fit, because calculator technology, Caltech, though it was actually named for the university, not for the fact that it was a calculator. They spent two years on this, came up with some innovative chip and board designs to make this work. When it came to the display, though, they had a real problem, because displays were still in a very primitive state at this point. 
there was something called a Nixie tube, which was a little similar to a vacuum tube or a fluorescent light tube in the sense that when you ran a current through it, it would glow. And you could get a display that way by actually putting the Nixie tubes in the shapes of all the letters and numbers that you needed. Nixie tubes, which were used in a lot of calculators at the time, were too bulky and ran too hot to be used in a pocket calculator-style device. LEDs were starting to come in. These are a special type of diode that actually TI was instrumental in creating, which would give off light when you ran a current through them. And so you could use LEDs, light-emitting diodes, for a display. But LEDs were still relatively new and they were still expensive. So the Caltech actually used a paper readout. It printed out everything that you uh, typed into it. That really has nothing to do with handheld electronic games. I just think that's kind of weird and cool. (laughs) The first kind of handheld calculator had a paper display instead of some kind of electronic or digital display. Hope you never run out of ticker tape. That's right. They got this prototype together by 1967, but it took them a few more years to get this prototype into a kind of usable state. They were actually beat to market. Even though they made the first one, they were actually beat to market by some other companies, though those companies were working off of the work that they had done at Texas Instruments to create more pocket-sized calculators. Even though this technology was all invented in the United States, the calculators themselves were primarily coming out of Japan. The reason for this goes back to the whole concept that we've talked about before of the Japanese economic miracle. The Japanese economic miracle, to just put it uh, very briefly, was the recovery of the Japanese economy from complete and utter total devastation and collapse after World War II, before the collapse of the bubble economy, into the second largest economy in the world. There were a lot of factors that went into this. Certainly, the United States gave a lot of developmental aid once it became clear that Japan was going to be an important partner in Asia to contain uh, the spread of communism out of Korea and China. But a big part of it was also a lot of central government planning on how to rebuild an economy, but not central planning in the sense of uh, communism, where the state is controlling the means of production and dictating everything but just in the sense of creating a regulatory environment that encourages kind of an uneven exchange of ideas in which you get companies like the United States to come in, make it easy for companies like the United States to buy your stuff and share their technology with you, but make it harder for the, for the inverse to happen which creates kind of a protected economy in a way where you're benefiting from the knowledge and know-how of economies that at the time are more advanced than yours without those companies being able to come in and dominate your own sector, but also by focusing on those industries that they figured were very integral to creating a modern economy. Steelmaking, automaking, later on electronics, and really fostering the development of industries in those areas. And a lot of these were manufacturing industries. The other kind of facet of this economic miracle is that the Japanese really honed in on early theories of quality control in manufacturing. Even though these theories were coming out of the United States, 
American companies weren't really paying attention to these new ideas of quality control in manufacturing, but boy, were the Japanese. So Japanese companies resolved to become, quite simply, the best manufacturers in the world. It's, it's very similar in that sense to what China has done over the last decade or so, though China's way of doing it is, is just throwing manpower at the problem, <laughs> quite frankly. The Japanese way of doing it, which of course also involved some manpower as well, but it was really about maximizing efficiency, maximizing quality control, being as precise as possible so that their manufacturing was just better. And because it was better, it was cheaper because you had higher yields, less defects. So more of what you were making actually made it to the end consumer. So Japan in the 60s and 70s became a real manufacturing powerhouse. So a lot of American companies that needed to get manufacturing done on fancy new, less established devices like electronics would often turn to Japan to do so. So the early handheld calculator industry, it was chips developed by companies like Texas Instruments, Texas Instruments spinoff Mostec, Fairchild, Rockwell International, and eventually Intel were powering these devices. But it was the Japanese that were building most of these devices. There were kind of four companies in particular that were kind of big on this back in the day. Many of them are still big today. One of these that is not still big today is a company called Busycom. Busycom was actually started as a calculator company. It was started in 1945 as the Nippon Calculating Machine Corporation and made mechanical calculators. They later renamed themselves the Business Computer Corporation, or Busycom for short. As integrated circuits were starting to proliferate, they kind of dove headfirst into electronics and created some of the first electronic calculators in the world. And they actually partnered with Mostec, the, the TI spinoff, to create the first handheld pocket calculator that was actually released. They beat Texas Instrument to market with this Mostec chip that was even more compact than the work the TR was doing. This was the uh, Handy LE, which was uh, released in March 1971. The other thing that Busycom is known for, they're long gone, but the other thing they're known for is commissioning Intel to create what eventually became the microprocessor. But the, the company that is most important for our purposes in this handheld electronic games episode is the company that, at the time, in the late 1960s, was known as the Hayakawa Electrical Company but would very soon, in 1970, be changing its name to Sharp Corporation. Sharp is actually an interesting story. It's a bit of a tangent. We're not going to go in-depth on it. Sharp was originally established in 1912 by an inventor by the name of uh, Tokuji Hayakawa. At the time, it was called the Hayakawa Metalworks because it had nothing to do with electronics at all. He was an inventor that was very skilled in metal manufacturing. He invented a snap belt buckle that was his first kind of big product. He also invented a very early adjustable flow faucet. Turn the handle and the stream gets more or less powerful, just like any sink today. Kind of his first really big product that he created in 1915 was the Eversharp mechanical pencil, which was one of the very first mechanical pencils. 
he would have probably been perfectly happy to stay in this world of metal manufacturing and mechanical manufacturing forever if it wasn't for the fact that in 1923, a little thing happened called the Great Kanto Earthquake. The Great Kanto Earthquake basically leveled Tokyo and Yokohama. It was a massive disaster. One of the buildings that was destroyed in this was the Hayakawa Metalworks Factory. Hayakawa was left with basically nothing at this point except for his intellectual property and a bunch of debts. He needed to use the first thing to take care of the second thing. So he ended up selling the rights to his mechanical pencil, his most successful product, to a manufacturing company down in Osaka. He relocated to Osaka and helped them get their factory operation up and running, but that was going to be the end of his ability to do anything with that product. It was no longer his. He decided he liked Osaka and he decided to stay there, but he needed a new product. This was just at the time that radio was coming in. So he decided to get involved in the design and manufacturing of crystal radio sets, which were just coming in to Japan. So with that pivot, he ended up in the electronics field. And then from crystal radio, he got into tube radios. From there, you know, you get into other electronics. After the war, they got into television. They created one of the first color televisions, maybe the first color television in Japan in about 1960. So they're just moving from technology to technology. They get into microwave ovens. They have all those things. They have their microwave oven. They have their color TV. Just no MTV yet. That comes later. They developed an engineering capacity around all of this. And after the color TV thing had kind of run its course, the engineers were sitting around and thinking about what they should get the company into next, because it's a company that was always moving towards new horizons. They decided that the next area to get into should be calculators and computers. So they set up a new R&D group, about 20 people, that started to just deep dive learning everything they could about transistors and electronics and computers and calculators and all of this, and resolved to be in this area. This led them to become the biggest calculator company in Japan. And as part of this, they also become one of the premier companies working with liquid crystal displays, or LCDs. We'll get into that more later. Where does that leave us at the beginning of the 1970s, right before all of this electronic handheld gaming stuff that we are theoretically here to talk about is getting started? Well, you have an American semiconductor establishment that has created more and more intricate integrated circuits that are allowing massive miniaturization of electronic devices, particularly of calculators, which are chosen by one of the pioneers in the field, Texas Instruments, as the best product to highlight this new technology. You have a series of companies in Japan, such as Busycom, Casio, Canon, and Sharp, that are embracing electronics as the new wave of devices to pay attention to and are really great at manufacturing, that are now partnering with chip companies in the U.S. like Texas Instruments, Fairchild, Mostech, and Rockwell to create these calculators and are the principal people selling these calculators. 
you have a public that is really excited about these new devices because they're actually useful. When the transistor radio came out, it was actually not as useful as a regular radio at that time, as a tube radio. It sold basically on its novelty. But the pocket calculator was instantly useful because engineers could be out on the design floor and have that with them. Somebody doing their grocery shopping could take it with them to do figures. This was actually something more useful than what came before. And so calculators were beginning to take over. People used them for practical reasons, but they were just fascinated with the fact that you could punch buttons and these numbers would come up on these usually LED, sometimes LCD displays, and you could manipulate them and you could play with them. It was kind of fun. You know, it's kind of interesting, even as a kid, obviously, I was, I was a kid in the 80s after this technology was already established, but I used to have fun just fooling around with a little pocket calculator, a little solar LCD display pocket calculator, entering numbers in, doing stuff. I especially like the ones where if you kept hitting equal, it would keep doing the same function over and over again. So like, you know, you could watch his numbers double or triple just by hitting enter over and over again. So people were just having fun with them. Like, these were practical tools, but they were also kind of fun. That is really what got toy companies thinking about how calculators could be adapted into games, especially since the technology was starting to become really, really cheap. And the reason for this was the infamous calculator wars that took place between about 1972 and 1975. Not going to go into huge detail on this, but it does have an impact on this whole story, so uh, just talking about it very briefly. Basically, as I said, this entire handheld calculator industry got started with American chip companies partnering with Japanese manufacturing companies. So all the chip work was being done by TI, by Rockwell, by Fairchild, by Intel, and then all of the manufacturing and marketing of these products, the actual end-user product, was being done by Casio and Sharp and Busycom and all of these guys. This was kind of working out for everybody. Everybody was making money, but the Japanese weren't content tend to just be the end product creator. They really wanted to use this as an opportunity to really learn how this stuff worked so that they could do their own chip fabrication as well. One of these methods that the Japanese government used to make sure that Japanese companies would become strong is they would not let American companies found businesses all by themselves in Japan. It's the same thing that China does these days. You had to do a joint venture with a Japanese company in order to do business in Japan. Because the Japanese economy was becoming quite robust, the Japanese were becoming great consumers. So it was a good market for the American companies to be in. And since they were such manufacturing experts, it was also a great place to establish a factory or a subsidiary. There was a lot of desire by American tech companies to be in Japan, but they couldn't do it without making a joint venture with a Japanese company. However, in the process of making that joint venture, they usually had to do things like licensing their patents. TI tried for years to get into Japan, and they were blocked for a very long time. They wanted to go into business with Sony. They were finally granted permission to get into Japan and do their joint venture with Sony, but only on the condition that they license their integrated circuit patents to all the Japanese companies. These Japanese companies 
were getting the rights to manufacture, you know, the patent rights to all of this advanced American technology for basically nothing. They were using this as a way to first manufacture these things, then dissect them, study them, and get to know how to make them themselves. So instead of just manufacturing them for the American companies, they're manufacturing for themselves. This really freaked out Texas Instruments and the other chip companies because they saw that they were getting cut out. The end products were already being all done in Japan. They didn't have their own domestic, like, calculator manufacturers they were working with. I'm sure there were one or two in the U.S., but, you know, it was mostly coming out of Japan. They made their money on the chips, but now if Japan's making its own chips, they'll be able to cut us out entirely, make their own chips, make their own calculators, and then we're screwed. So Texas Instruments decided to violate one of the fundamental laws of being a component manufacturer, which is you don't compete with your own customers. They decided that in order to remain viable in the calculator business, to remain viable in computer chips, integrated circuits, they would need to build their own calculators. That's what they did in 1972. They released their own calculator model. And because they were vertically integrated, because they were making the chips and the components, in addition to doing the end product, the casing and the product marketing and the packaging and everything, they were able to undercut the Japanese companies on price and some of the domestic companies that were working with Japanese companies like, go say, Commodore. Jack Tramiel's going to get his revenge as we discussed in our live stream last year. But they come in and they start undercutting everybody in price, and it leads to this huge price war. When pocket calculators first came out, they cost about $300 a pop. By 1974, the calculator wars, three years later, had driven the price down to 1995. By 1975, National Semiconductor, because after Texas Instrument did this, all of the chip companies started doing this, so National Semiconductor started releasing their own calculators too, they released a model for $9.95. It obliterated the profitability in the business. It drove a lot of companies out. Most of the Japanese companies made it through. The American or North American companies like Bomar and Commodore didn't. Busycom also didn't make it in Japan. The other Japanese companies made it, but it was kind of the end of this high period of profitability in calculators. It left a wasteland in its wake. It was the first consumer electronics boom. By 1974, 7 million pocket calculators were being sold a year, a staggering number. And it was also the first consumer electronics bust. 1972, everyone wanted them. 1975, the market was dead. You have two things happening here. You have a public that has become used to the idea of using these handheld calculators, enjoys using these handheld calculators, and even to a small degree finds them entertaining, in addition to being just a practical use product. You have a bunch of calculator manufacturers, chip manufacturers, screen manufacturers, which are often one and the same company with all the vertical integration going on that suddenly needed new types of products because you just couldn't make money in calculators anymore. Obviously, calculators aren't going away. I mean, you know, they're mostly on our phones now, but we still have them today. I mean, calculators were not going to go away, but they were no longer going to be profitable. The margins had been completely destroyed. 
So there was a desperate need for new product. And this was the exact same time, of course, that you had just had the Pong boom in the arcades. You had this idea of video games coming in. One area that it seemed very logical to try to move integrated circuits into was the video game industry and bringing these arcade video games home. So that's how you get Home Pong and the GI Pong on a chip and the whole ball and paddle craze that we've talked about in other episodes and we won't go back to here. One kind of downside of going this route, going with the consoles, the dedicated consoles like Home Pong, is that they're very expensive. These are products that are between $70 and $100 in price. This is not something that the toy industry is particularly comfortable with. You know, these video games, they're games. It's right there in the title. So clearly, we are looking at electronics expanding into the toy business. There's some disagreement on whether these are consumer electronic products or toy products, or, you know, sometimes they're sold in sporting goods departments, is that kind of recreation. But it's clear that they're games, that they're something that children are going to enjoy. They're not just being marketed to children. But it's clear that this is something that children are going to enjoy. So it's a logical fit for the toy industry, but at $70 to $100 a pop, it's very frightening to the toy industry. The toy industry is a traditionally very low-margin business where you have really cheap products that you just sell a ton of. In those days, toys were just not more than 30 bucks. Some of the bigger toy stores, like a Toys R Us or something, might sell bicycles that are more expensive. But in general, a $30 toy was an expensive toy. Toys were generally much cheaper than that, even. Companies in the toy industry saw that this whole electronics thing was something that they should probably get involved with. But they didn't feel comfortable necessarily doing the whole video game thing. They didn't have the in-house expertise, and it scared them to death to be trying to market such a high-ticket item. If they could do something smaller and cheaper, this could be their way into this new electronic game fad that is just starting up. For this, they look specifically to the pocket calculator for inspiration. This is why we've spent like an hour talking about calculators in our episode on the history of electronic games. One, because we do tangents all the time on They Create Worlds and we can't do anything quickly. But also, two, because the handheld game industry grew directly out of the calculator industry. The first person that really honed in on this, or the first company that really honed in on this, was the toy company Mattel. Mattel was always one of the more sophisticated toy companies in terms of its R&D work, in terms of its work with electronics and electrical stuff, etc. I think a big part of that is because unlike most of the toy industry, which was located in the Northeast, primarily in New England, places like Massachusetts and Connecticut and Rhode Island, home of such firms as Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley, Hasbro, and Coleco. Mattel was located in Southern California, in Los Angeles area. Southern California was a big hub for the aerospace industry. Hughes, TRW, Raytheon, 
NASA established its Jet Propulsion Laboratory down there. It was an area with a lot of sophistication, not just in terms of electronics, but in terms of R&D, in terms of project management. There was a lot of sophistication in Southern California that you didn't see around some of those other toy companies in New England. And in the 1960s, you know, the company was founded by the Handlers and Elliot Matt Matson, where the name Mattel comes from. Matt Matson and Elliot Handler make Mattel. In the 1960s, they brought in a new head of R&D from the aerospace industry named Jack Ryan. Not that Jack Ryan. He brought a lot of the discipline of aerospace industry and space program industry R&D development into the toy company. At Mattel, toy companies were very hit and miss on how they came up with new products back in the day, and they often relied on outside inventors. Some clever person would come up with a game in their basement or a toy in their basement, and then they would shop it around to the toy companies. That's how a lot of things from uh, Monopoly to Mr. Potato Head came into existence. There were other people that set up invention firms, people like Marvin Glass of Marvin Glass Associates, that set up firms whose sole job was to come up with ideas and then they would sell them to the toy companies. Did toy companies sometimes come up with their own internal concepts? Of course they did. But a lot of the work was done by outside design talent. There wasn't really this idea of research and development within a toy company. Mattel was different. Mattel had a very big research and development apparatus that was started in the 60s by Jack Ryan and had only grown from there. By the 1970s, they had a division called Preliminary Design, which was kind of the main R&D hub. There'd been a lot of internal politics shifting around. Jack Ryan had a lot of <laughs> enemies at the company. There's, there's a lot there that we're not going to go into. But this led to other divisions being established, and then those were consolidated and everything until they finally ended up with this preliminary design division. These were the guys that were off on their own just dreaming up the next big things. They had design directors who were doing work, and they were in their own separate part of the building that was key card accessible only. Not anyone could just walk in there. There was a lot of secrecy. This was stuff that they took directly from the aerospace industry, that Jack Ryan took directly from the aerospace industry. They would dream up the next big thing, some of which, by this time, were starting to become electronic in nature. At the same time, Mattel went through a real crisis because they had undergone a massive expansion in the late 1960s and early 1970s, not just in the toy industry, but outside of the toy industry. This was the era of the conglomerate. We've brought that up many times before in reference to Warner Communications and Atari or Engulf and Devour and Sega. I've made that reference before, but still bonus points if you get it again. Mattel decided to do the same thing under the concept of the world of the young. We're going to become involved in all areas that involve children, so we're not just going to do toys. We're going to do playground equipment. We're going to do aquarium and other pet stuff. We're going to do children's movies. We're going to do children's books. They also went public, and they also promised their shareholders that this conglomerizing initiative was going to give them insane levels of growth. Problem was... As many conglomerates found, they weren't really able to integrate all of these operations, and some of these individual operations that they had bought into were having huge challenges. They even bought the Ringling Brothers Circus. 
not because they really needed a circus, per se, though they got one, but because Ringling Brothers had been building an amusement park called Circus World in Florida, and they wanted to get into the amusement park business. Well, Circus World kept getting delayed, and it turns out circuses aren't a great investment. Who knew? Their film production never really got off the ground too much. They were the co-producers of Sounder, which was a kind of well-regarded children's film, but on the whole, it didn't take off. Playground equipment, pet supplies, none of this was really doing much. And at the same time, the core toy business was hitting a bunch of problems as well. It turned out, instead of a lot of growth, the company was starting to flatline. But that wouldn't do after they had promised tons and tons of growth to everybody. We can't have flatlining. So they may have booked orders as sales, which may not be, strictly speaking, legal. They were just going to do this for a little bit, just to keep things going, just keep them on their feet until things settled down. And things didn't settle down. Things kept getting worse. So they finally got to the point where they couldn't hide things anymore. They finally had to report a loss. This came so far out of left field that they then kind of also had to restate earnings from past years. This kind of made the SEC take notice. There was a big investigation, and the shenanigans were brought to light. That's not good. Yes, the securities fraud was noticed, and the handlers and their EVP that had done the actual cooking were all basically forced to cut ties with the company. This all came to a head in 1975. So at this time, Mattel is reeling. They still have Barbie. They still have Hot Wheels, though uh, some of the luster has worn off of both of these products at this time. It would come back, but in this exact period, some of the luster had worn off a little bit. So really, the company needed a rebound. They needed new products fast. In order to get themselves there, just as they pulled very early from the aerospace industry to become up with a more sophisticated R&D apparatus than any other toy company at the time, they decided to tap what are called brand managers in the consumer products world in order to jumpstart moves into new product categories and toys to kind of get them back on their feet. Brand management is a concept that was basically invented by the uh, Cincinnati Corporation Procter & Gamble, which are the true masters of brands. Because if you say Procter & Gamble or P&G to somebody, most people won't know what the heck you're talking about. But then if you start naming their brands, Crest, Downey, Clorox, Ivory Soap, Pringles, they don't own that anymore. But they did, yes. The potato chip established by a chemical research company. That sounds like a safe product. I know, I felt (laughs) safe every time I ate it. Tide detergent. When you start listing off their brands, then it's like, okay, now I know who these people are. That's what Procter & Gamble did. They came up with the idea of instead of having their name plastered on everything, they would create new products, you know, chemical research and whatnot. And then they would develop a brand around the product. And instead of marketing the company, Procter & Gamble, they would market the brand. So they developed this role of the brand manager, the person that was entirely in charge of 
all of the product decisions around a particular brand of product, and they really invented the concept of brand management. Then, as Procter & Gamble became ridiculously successful, other companies emulated them, and this idea of brand management spread far and wide. So Mattel decided to look to brand management in order to get back on track here. So they hired a lot of people out of the consumer products industry, out of food and toiletries and cleaning, you know, detergents and all of this. They, they hired people out of these businesses to come in and help develop new lines, new brands for Mattel. One of the people that they brought in was a brand manager by the name of Michael Katz. We've talked about cats before, and I don't mean Spelunky cats, I mean Michael Katz's, spelled completely differently. Also, probably doesn't purr as much, though I've never uh, tested this theory in person. I have interviewed him. I did not ask him to purr. That would have just been weird. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Friend of Carl's show, Mike Katz. Katz had an MBA from Columbia, done undergraduate at Cornell, smart guy. He had gone to work for Lever Brothers and Foremost Foods, two food products companies, as a brand manager. So he had a background in brand management. Then he became an account manager at McCann Erickson. So he had ad agency marketing experience as well. He was headhunted into Mattel as director of new product category marketing. According to Katz, his mandate in this role was to explore product categories that were either brand new categories or categories Mattel had not been successful in in the past as a way to grow the business and help the company get back on track. One area that Mattel had never been strong in was games, games of any kind. They were not a board game company. That was the Milton Bradleys and Parker Brothers of the world. So games was an area that Katz very quickly honed in on. But of course, you can't just do what the other guys are doing. If you're trying to break into new product, you have to be different. According to Katz, you know, he, he looked at the pocket calculator, how people were fascinated by them, how people liked not just using them, but playing around with them, and thought that this would be a way to get in, is maybe create a game using calculator technology. So according to Katz, at a, at a brainstorming session with a preliminary design, he asked Richard Chang, one of the directors in preliminary design, to, to go away and, and look at doing a calculator-sized electronic game using LEDs, light-emitting diodes, which had become kind of the standard display for calculators. At this time, you couldn't really make a complex image with an LED, but you could make lines or other basic shapes and kind of move them around your LED display by choosing which ones you're lighting up at any given time. Almost like a stick figure movement thing or a flip book. Exactly. Richard Chang and George Close, two engineers in preliminary design, as well as uh, Dave James, an artist in preliminary design, go away and start working on this. This is according to Katz. We don't have anyone else necessarily corroborating his part of that story. Richard Chang is long dead, unfortunately. Kat says he's the one that set Chang to the task, which may be true. I'm just saying we can't be 100% certain of it. Certainly everyone else acknowledges that Chang is the one that went away and put this together. We do know that by early 1976, they were exploring both handheld and video games. The genesis of what became in television was going on at this very same time. They decided it would make a lot more sense at first to just explore these simpler calculator-sized games. 
So they go away and they put a concept together and decide that obstacle avoidance is probably the best thing that you can do with these LEDs. Because you can have an LED that you're controlling, you can have an LED LEDs that are automatically moving around the screen, and you can just use very simple controls to move your LED across rows and columns to avoid the other things. They come up with a few different concepts based on that. They come up with an auto racing concept, the idea that the other LEDs are cars on the road and you're driving and you're avoiding them. That's a vertically oriented one. They come up with a horizontally oriented one, which is the idea that you're a football player, it's a football game, and you're avoiding the defense as you're trying to score a touchdown. And then they also come up with a concept of instead of avoiding the LEDs, having the LEDs collide. And so they come up with like a missile attack style game where instead of trying to avoid the computer controlled LEDs, you're trying to make your LED connect with the computer controlled LEDs. They do some focus testing because they're big into research. Mattel was very much a pioneer in consumer research as well in the toy industry. They were really, in a lot of ways, the first truly sophisticated toy company, which was a big part of the reason for their success over the years. They decided that football would probably be the best concept, but since it was more complicated, they decided to do their first proof of concept around the auto racing game, which was a little more simple. Now, of course, they don't have the expertise in-house to do the design of these things. So just like the calculator companies did back in the day, they went to a chip company to partner with to make this thing happen, in this case, Rockwell International. Rockwell assigned a a guy named Mark Lesser as the programmer who went on to a very long career in the video game industry uh, with Mattel and Electronic Arts and others to take one of their calculator chips and figure out how to program a little game on it. These were 4-bit chips, as calculators don't need a lot. It was kind of challenging, pretty small memory size as well. They're not going to use separate raw memory for any of this. That's way too expensive, so they're just using the limited amount of onboard memory on this 4-bit calculator chip. But he figures out a way to compress it and and make this kind of simple auto race game. From the toy design perspective, the people at Mattel are well covered. Uh, James does the design of the casing and the art and all of that that's surrounding it. Once they're sure they can do that and that that all works out, they start work on the football game as well. At this point, they connect with APH, a consulting company founded by Glenn Hightower and John Dinker, to help them get further involved in making these handheld games. They also eventually start bringing in their own in-house staff as well. All of this kind of lays the groundwork for Mattel Electronics. This isn't a Mattel Electronics episode. This is a broad overview of handheld gaming, so we're not going to get into all of that nuance. We have done other episodes on Mattel where you can get all of that information. Those will be linked in the show notes. But the important thing is you had a perfect storm here. You had the obsession of the general public with the calculator. You had calculator technology coming down in price because of this obsession. You had the video game boom starting, but you had toy companies that were not necessarily ready to make that big a leap. Obviously, Coleco did. Coleco's the one that got into the video game industry, but the rest of them, Hasbro, Milton Bradley, Parker Brothers, Ideal, none of the rest of them got into video games. It was kind of scary. But would potentially be interested in getting some of that electronic games money. And then you had a company like Mattel that had just gone through this very bad corporate situation and was getting investigated by the SEC and sued by the shareholders and the founders were forced to leave and it's a disaster that really needs something new and hot to get on their feet. So you put this all together and you get Mattel creating 
the first handheld electronic games. Football and Auto Race Older sources like to say that Auto Race came out in 1976 and football came out in 1977. Those older sources are wrong. They both debuted at the same time at the CES show in 77, and they both went on the market at the same time in the middle of the year. It's possible Auto Race got to stores first or something by a week or two. I have no idea, but it definitely didn't come out in 1976. They're both 1977 games. So if you take only one thing away from this episode... (laughs) That's right. If you take one thing away, Auto Race was not released in 76. It was released in 77. We have the trade publications. We have Weekly Television Digest. We have all the announcements. At first... Nobody's quite sure what to make of these. They seem like they're pretty primitive compared to the television video games. There's actually not a lot of enthusiasm. Sears orders a bunch, does some market testing, decides that maybe this isn't going to be a big thing, and cancels a bunch of their orders and nearly derails the entire operation as a result. Once the public gets a hold of them, they become a big hit. Sears suddenly comes back and says, okay, we'll take a bunch of them again. And by the end of the year, football is selling like hotcakes, especially. Auto Race is also out there, but football especially is selling like hotcakes. And this is the opening salvo. 77 is the beginning of this handheld electronic game market. Now that we've got these introduced, we have to hit that question that Ethan hinted at way earlier in the stream. I keep referring to these as electronic games. Are they, in fact, video games? Semantics! It's a complicated question. I think technologically speaking, based on the definition that I use for a video game, I think they are. The definition that I like to use is a video game is an interactive device where electronic logic circuits are driving an arbitrary display for the purposes of creating an entertainment product. It fits that entire definition. It uses electronic logic circuits. There's a 4-bit calculator chip in there. It has an arbitrary display, by which I mean that you can turn segments of the display on and off, change segments of the display without changing the whole thing. You can move stuff around on the screen independent. It's an arbitrary display. It's an entertainment product. It's a video game. It, It really is. The thing that's weird about them is that at the time, they were not considered video games. Video games were considered these things you hooked into a television set, and handhelds were these simple electronic devices. They were cheaper. They did not interact with your television. The gameplay was sometimes more simplistic, though not always, because there were some pretty simplistic video games as well. So it was always treated as a different product category. It was never treated as a video game by the trade ever, even in more recent times as video games got more sophisticated. And handheld games got more sophisticated, like in the NES era or whatever. They weren't really considered video games. They were considered their own category of game. I tend to make a distinction between the early handheld electronic games and actual video games just because of the way the public perception worked. But I do also understand that by my own definition, they are video games. Are they video games? Sure, why not? And also, no, I don't think they were. All at the same time. They weren't seen as video games at the time, but this is essentially another form of video game, and it was a form of video game that was 
more palatable to the toy industry, to toy companies, to toy buyers. And it was also cheaper, which meant that a larger segment of the public could engage with this, because video games were 70 to to $100. That was a lot of money in 1976, 1977, 1978. This was an upper-crust product. They were largely sold through department stores, more fancy kind of establishments. These handheld games, they could be $20, $30, $40, a lot cheaper, and they would sell through a lot more outlets, including toy stores. They were more of a toy than a complex consumer electronic product. So this made them attainable by a large segment of the population that couldn't necessarily obtain a video game in the early days. Once football and auto race established themselves in 1977, in 1978, the entire world got into these electronic handheld games. They were mostly in the same vein as the Mattel games. There were a lot of sports games. There were racing games, baseball games, football games, soccer games, basketball games. You also had card games as a very popular kind of subject. You needed things that would be very easy to represent with abstract, very simple graphics because you didn't have a complete television image. You just had these rows of LED lights. They weren't as sophisticated as the newly emerging video games were, on the whole, with things like the Channel F and the Atari VCS coming in in uh, 76 and 77, let alone things like the Odyssey 2 or the, the Bally Professional Arcade, you know, coming in in 78. Like, they're not as sophisticated, but they're cheaper, and they're more compact, they're portable, you can take them with you. A huge market develops kind of out of these novelties, and by 1978, millions of these things are being sold a year. By 1980, like 16 million are selling a year. The market peaks in 1980 at $1 billion in wholesale sales. That's manufacturers selling to retailers. The retail take would be even bigger than that. This is late 1970s, so they're making some pretty decent money here. Yes, they absolutely are. So these things really took off because of their affordability and portability. They became ubiquitous, and this seemed like it was perhaps becoming the future of the industry. For a brief period of time, it looked like programmable games were going to be squeezed out as a category, and video games were going to be squeezed out as a category, because it looked like Mattel Electronics-style handheld games and the other types of handheld games that came after it, because they continued to evolve, were going to become the low end of the market that cheap computers were going to become the high end of the market, and that video game consoles were going to be completely squeezed out. Because things really went crazy in 1978 as the other toy companies got in. You know, you had companies making these handheld things, but then you also had slightly larger tabletop puzzle games coming along. We're talking about things like Milton Bradley's Simon, which was created by uh, Ralph Baer as a derivative of the Atari arcade game Touch Me. We're talking about Parker Brothers' Merlin that was created by some outside contractors that Parker Brothers brought in. Robert and Holly Doyle. All of the toy companies are feeling so much more comfortable with this. You know, the numbers are huge. Simon's the best-selling handheld of 78. It does over a million units. Merlin does 700,000 units. Mattel has sold a million footballs. They sell a million of their basketballs. This is becoming a really big business. Handheld games, tabletop games. Coleco, after they had a disaster in the dedicated console market, pivots 
into these handheld games, and they create Electronic Quarterback, which is a more sophisticated version of Battelle's football. And then in 1979, they release a series of head-to-head sports games, two-player games that are really more tabletops than handhelds, but have controls on either end, so two players at a time can play football, baseball, basketball, all of this kind of stuff. So these were huge throughout 77, 78, 79. They were seeing growth of 200% a year. The market was starting to get flooded, not just by the domestic companies, but offshore companies. The Japanese were getting involved, often partnering with American companies, some of which we'll get into in a moment. It was big business, but it suddenly collapsed for basically all the same reasons that the calculator market collapsed. You got into price wars. You got into rapidly improving technology. You had a glut in the market. You had too many products. The prices were coming down too much. It was becoming impossible to make a profit on it. The gameplay hadn't really advanced much. Most of the games were still relying on the same kind of obstacle avoidance or obstacle collision LED gameplay that Mattel was doing. Games like Merlin and Simon were different. They were pattern recognition kind of games using lights and sounds. But even that kind of concept could only be taken so far. So there really wasn't much advance in gameplay happening. It was in these very small little narrow categories, and the glut of product in the market was just driving down prices and destroying profitability. The entire business basically collapsed. It grew in 1980, but it didn't grow as much as it was supposed to. And then after 1980, it started falling off a cliff. Though there is another important reason that it also started falling off a cliff, And that was, in 1980, Atari launched Space Invaders on the VCS. Programmable consoles finally had a killer app. Therefore, the VCS was ascendant, and handheld games with their primitive LED displays were forgotten. That was really the end of the Golden Age for handhelds, kind of after 1980. However, that is not to say that the handheld games suddenly disappeared. They did not. You still had the same problem that you had with the original handheld game market versus the original dedicated Pong market. The video games might be more sophisticated. They might allow for more gameplay variety. But they are also much more expensive. A VCS is going to set you back, depending on how it's being discounted by a retailer, anywhere from 150 to 200 bucks. Then you have to, again, depending on what sales are going on, spend between 20 and 30 bucks to buy your Space Invaders. That's a lot of money. The other thing is that, of course, video games require the use of the television as well. This is a period of time when in many parts of the world, many parts of the world where a lot of people don't even have televisions yet. But when you do have a television, you often have only one. So if you're playing on the television, nothing else can get done. Even though there's coming to be a recognition that perhaps programmable systems are the best way to try to experience the latest coin-operated hits in the home, Systems like the VCS, like the forthcoming in television, like the Bally Professional Arcade. It's not always feasible to bring the games home in that way. And I think while it's true in the United States, it's especially true in other parts of the world. It's true in Europe 
where the cost of living standards are lower. It's also true in Japan, where cost of living isn't really an issue. We're right in the bubble economy, but space is very much an issue. The Japanese people live in very, for the most part, very cramped living spaces because real estate is at a premium there. Especially in the cities. Exactly. Their living spaces where their television are are very small. You don't have a lot of room to store a bunch of consoles and games and game controllers and all of this stuff. Plus, you probably only do have one TV. So if kid is playing game on TV, nobody else can watch TV. There are still markets where it makes sense to have some kind of electronic game that isn't a video game as a way of bringing arcade games home, because there's huge demand for arcade games to come home. You know, the coin-operated industry has just taken off ridiculously. Everybody just is getting addicted to games like Breakout and Space Invaders and Pac-Man throughout this period, but it is expensive. So many quarters. So the desire to be able to just play at home whenever you want is a pretty strong desire. And now that Atari has shown the way with Space Invaders on the VCS, there's going to be more and more of this bringing these games home. So there's huge demand for this, but it's not always practical to do it on a video game. However, it's also not really that practical to do it on an LED system at this time. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. But in this period, you know, the LED games like Mattel did, I mean, you can't get any kind of definition out of that. You need to do something that isn't a television. So what do we do? I mean, there's LCD theoretically, but LCDs are also still very primitive. They're going to be coming. We're going to talk about them. But at this time, LCDs aren't a great way either to capture what is going on in the arcade. We end up going on a little sidetrack to a different kind of display technology that only has a brief moment in the sun. That is the VFD, or Vacuum Fluorescent Display. Ooh. Those of you that had consumer electronics in the 80s and early 90s will very much remember the VFD, even if you have never heard the term before. Because if you had a stereo, a CD player, or one of the higher-end, fancier VCRs, you probably had a pretty glowing VFD display. I'm not a technical person, so you'll have to, uh, you know, excuse my faux pas there, but a VFD is basically like a cathode ray tube, except that unlike a cathode ray tube, it can generate light at a much lower voltage. You wouldn't use a cathode ray tube for like a stereo display <laughs> using your television, but that'd be ridiculous using it for a stereo display. Just like a cathode ray tube, it does have, it's a vacuum tube with an anode and a cathode and a grid. Just like with any other vacuum tube, you heat it to a certain point to cause movement of electrons through the grid, which then ping against a surface to create a glow. Except in this case, you tend to do them in specific shapes. Unlike a cathode ray tube where you're scanning an entire screen, you're arranging your uh, material into specific shapes to be able to make uh, specific patterns. The cool thing about this is they make really bright, glowy images for lower power consumption than the cathode ray tube, though still a kind of high power consumption. The downside of it is they are very power hungry, as all vacuum devices 
tend to be. They need that steady flow of electrons. But they make really striking, glowy, colorful graphics. By default, it's kind of a bluish-green catholuminescence, though you can use various techniques to get other colors as well. The neat things about these is, unlike LEDs, you can get some pretty nicely defined shapes out of these things. The downside is that you're going to have a very small screen. You can't really make a display, a VFD display that's very large. That's why they were primarily used in things like stereos and CD players or VCRs, where you're just doing a small clock display or sound level displays, that kind of thing, because your screens are going to be pretty small. They're ideal, though, to turn into kind of a handheld entertainment. So that's where the industry kind of pivots largely in the 79 through 82 time period, is you get a lot of these VFD games that are largely emulating some of the bigger hits in the arcade, the Space Invaders, Galaxians, Donkey Kongs of the world, Frogger. A lot of this early work was being done in Japan by Japanese toy companies that were very comfortable with this kind of technology like Tomy and Epoch. In the United States, probably the leader in this field, in the first part of it, was a company called Intex Industries. Intex is a company I'm not sure we've talked about before because we haven't been talking about the handheld game stuff very much though that wasn't the only thing they were in. Intex was formed in 1970 by three individuals by the name of Tony Clues, Nicholas Carlozzi, and Nick Underhill. The company name comes from the initials of two of those three founders. The company was first being brainstormed in 1969 before Nick Underhill joined. So they decided to name it by combining their first initials with the letter X. So N for Nicholas, T for Tony, and then X to be Intex, N-T-X. But then they actually spelled that out, Intex, E-N-T-E-X, as the final name of the company. Tony Clues was kind of the real mover and shaker here. He had a background in the toy industry. He had worked for, I think it was a Canadian company. He is British. In fact, served in the RAF, which is where the Intex logo comes from. He had worked for a Canadian toy company called Eldon that had been very involved with slot cars, which were a a big fad kind of in the 60s. Those are the little uh, electric race cars where you have a track and there's a groove in the track with wiring in it. And you have a car that has a little metal contact and then you put that in there and, you know, the contact makes the electric connection with the little motor in the car and then you can drive the car around the track. Those still existed very much when Jeffrey and I were kids. They probably still exist now. It's how we formed our friendship. Yes, indeed. Yes, it is. I had a tiny slot car set that we uh, raced around with in the early days. Still have it in my basement. It's not set up or anything, but I still have it. Well, my parents' basement. While they're still around, they were a huge deal in like the 60s. They became very big, which is why, as Ethan here says in chat about how they're intertwined, a lot of toy and coin-op stories... They became such a big fad that they even penetrated arcades. There were coin-operated slot racers 
as well. It was it was a huge fad. And so Clues was very comfortable with electronics. And Eldon had also gotten a lot of its slot car stuff from Japanese companies. So he was pretty comfortable with electronics and he was pretty comfortable with Japanese imports. He was kind of well-situated to take advantage of this new market coming up. Now, when the company started, they did a couple of simple electric toys, but the main thing that they were actually really well-known for was model kits, plastic model kits. That was their big claim to fame in the kind of 1970 to 1975 period. But because he had that familiarity with technology, he wasn't afraid to branch into other areas as well. And so Intex actually created one of the very first dedicated Pong systems to hit the market in early 1976 after Home Pong ignited the huge ball and paddle craze. So Intex was very early in the Pong market. Once Mattel's handhelds took off, they were very early in the handheld market as well, creating similar LED-type games. I shouldn't say creating because they weren't creating their stuff in-house. A lot of their early stuff was coming from Japan. Then later on, they made a deal with a former Mattel employee by the name of Rick Dyer, and his company advanced microcomputer systems to do their stuff. So they were contracting mostly with outsiders, so they had a couple people on the inside as well, and then just packaging that stuff and marketing it. They became one of the real leaders in VFD in the United States. It kind of got its start in Japan because of that problem that I said before about consoles. It's like consoles weren't really practical there. There was a brief dedicated console boom in Japan, ball and paddle boom, from like 77 to 79. Consoles weren't as practical there because of the space constraints and the television constraints, so the toy companies were very quick to fill that void with these VFD-style games. Tomy made a very notable Pac-Man-style unit. Epoch made Space Invaders and Pac-Man and other types of games, as well as they made some sports games as well. Intex brought some of these first games into the United States and released them there. These were also very popular in Britain, where cost of living was a major concern, and so these handheld games were very popular there. Companies like Grandstand imported Japanese products, OEM'd, put their own uh, casing and own labels on them and released them. So these Space Invaders games, these Pac-Man games, Galaxian games— These really, really proliferated in kind of the 79 to 82 period. They had less of an impact in the United States, and they had more of an impact in Japan and Europe. Intex had real success with their Pac-Man and Galaxian games, but then ended up getting themselves into a bit of trouble because another company in the United States that decided to get involved in all of this was Coleco. Coleco had crashed and burned hard in video games. We talked about that in our Coleco episode and our dedicated Pong episodes. Retreated into handheld games and wasn't quite ready to get back into video games again during the period of time when Space Invaders and Pac-Man took off and really reignited the whole business. But they wanted to get in on that hot field of licensing the hottest arcade titles that Atari had pioneered. So they went out to some of the major companies like Namco and Sega and Nintendo and licensed their hit arcade games for like the handheld slash tabletop game market. So they didn't have the video game rights. You know, Atari had the video game rights to Pac-Man, but Coleco had the handheld slash tabletop rights to Pac-Man. So they had these beautiful VFD games created in these wonderful cabinets 
that mimicked the real-life cabinet of the game, games like Pac-Man and Frogger and Donkey Kong, some of the biggest hits in the business, and released them in these mini arcade formats with arcade-like controls and with these colorful BFD graphics. These were a big hit. They also began enforcing their rights, or rather... Namco and Midway began enforcing their rights that they had given to Coleco. So Intex actually found themselves sued over their Galaxian and Pac-Man products, which were derivatives that were not actually licensed from Namco. So there was a big lawsuit. They ended up going to Coleco to settle, and the settlement that they came up with was basically Coleco told them, okay, through the end of 1981, you can keep selling these games. New Year's Day, 1982, they're all off the shelves, and you hand over all your profits that you made on these games. So that's what they did. They handed over all their profits. Mike Rounds, who was the head of engineering, he gave a talk on all of this at the Classic Gaming Expo in 2004. He says that he went to CES that year, the the January CES uh, in 82, to see Coleco's new products. Someone asked him, you know, what are you hanging around there for? And he said, I wanted to see what my Christmas bonus bought, because <laughs> since there were no profits, <laughs> nobody got any bonuses. Coleco had a, a great success in 1982 with these mini arcade games. Intex did rebound. They didn't go away. They went out and got the Williams license. So they released BFD, Defender, and Stargate, and, and all of this. So that was kind of where the industry went in this time. And then there was one very interesting move into LEDs that were more sophisticated that we have to take a second to talk about with Intex. And that was something called Adventure Vision. One other interesting thing that happened in 1982, 1982 was the year that there really should have been a console transition. We talked about this kind of in our crash episode, and there was sort of a console transition happening with the Atari 5200 and the ColecoVision coming in. But nobody really understood what a console transition was then. Nobody really knew what the future was going to look like. But everyone kind of had the idea that what the Atari VCS was doing was no longer enough. There was this idea that we had to figure out how to do games in a better resolution than the player missile blobs that were available on the VCS. Some companies, like Atari with its next-gen system, or like Coleco with its ColecoVision, were looking at improving video games to do that. Just traditional raster scan, plug into the television video games. But other companies were taking different approaches, because it wasn't clear in the moment what that future necessarily looked like. This is how you get the Vectrex, which is like, well, we'll get higher resolution by bringing vector graphics in the home. Intex also decided to try to pursue a higher-resolution solution to the Atari VCS for bringing the latest arcade games home. Their solution, they had kind of tried to get into CRT stuff and didn't have much success with it, because they're trying to keep their products cheaper. They're trying to do it cheaper than console systems, and they couldn't come up with a cheap CRT system that worked. Their solution was to do an LED system. LEDs are going to come back. But this time, LEDs aren't just going to be just little lines on the screen. LEDs are going to be graphics. The way they do this, an employee, I think he was an employee, either that or he was a contractor, by the name of Bob McCaslin, came up with a system where you would have a bank of 40 LEDs, and then you would have a rotating mirror in the system. 
this mirror would project these LED lights to various parts of the playfield. So with a small number of LEDs, with these 40 LEDs, you could create elaborate pictures by constantly rotating the mirror to reflect them in different parts of the display. And if some of you from the 90s are thinking, that sounds like Virtual Boy, well, yes, it kind of was, with the exception that it was only one mirror, so it wasn't trying to create a 3D effect. But it was the exact same kind of idea, using red LEDs and a mirror to position them in such a way that they can create graphics. This was actually a very interesting kind of solution to this problem, and so they got a team together and created this system called Adventure Vision. It was a very complex thing to put together. The mechanical portion of it, the rotating mirror portion of it, was so complex that they actually hired a guy, Rob Baker, who had done the turret design for the A6 gunship. They had to bring in a guy that was an expert at military-grade turrets, gun turrets, to be able to come up with a practical rotating mirror solution for this. They put this thing together, and they had their Williams games that they had licensed. They'd also done some licensing deals with Konami. So they created this LED Adventure Vision system. They had four games at launch. I say at launch, but they're the only four games that were ever made for it. Those being Defender, which was their flagship. Then also Super Cobra and Turtles, both licensed from Konami. And Space Force by a more obscure coin-op company called VentureLine, which is a somewhat similar game to Asteroids. We'll definitely put some Adventure Vision gameplay in the, the show notes because it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's red, like the Virtual Boy. It has the problem of being very red. And it's also very flickery because they're having to do constant refreshes, redraws with the mirror reposition. But they are fairly well-defined graphics. I mean, they're not high definition by any stretch, but I mean, vector graphics are certainly sharper, but you get kind of a similar effect to vector graphics without the 3D elements. You know, the Defender game is recognizably Defender, which is kind of saying something. I looked up a quick video that seems to describe how this thing works and actually does have the actual console. So today we have those retro consoles you can buy. It is almost the same form factor, a little bit bigger than that. You look at the graphics in there, yep, it is definitely very red. And look at that. At the top, it has these convenient slots where you can put four games. Huh, I wonder why. (laughs) Yes, definitely wonder why there. You look at the game itself, I'm looking at an actual thing of Defender being played, and it is simple. It's all dots, so they just put all the dots together at a certain way to make it look like Defender. You have little mountains there, you have your flying thing, you have your bullets flying, you have your overall map and score at the top. It's an interesting recreation. Would I want to play this all the time? I don't know. There is some flickering going on as I look at the camera. I'm not sure how much of that is refresh rate or whatever, but it is interesting. You got a little joystick. You got four buttons on the left, four buttons on the right, where you plug things in with the game in in the middle. It's an interesting piece of technology. I think it's a good proof of concept, but I want to see what the refinement would be. The refinement was the virtual boy. <laughs> and that is uh, terrifying to think about, that the refinement's the virtual boy. Essentially, I mean, it was different people that did the virtual boy, but it functions on the same basic 
premise that you are using mirrors to reflect LEDs to create a bigger image. This was an, an interesting attempt. Unfortunately, at the time, Intex was having financial problems. So they did an initial run of about 10,000 and then basically shut the whole thing down because Intex was in the process of falling apart. It didn't get a lot of traction and is very rare today. And it's even rarer to find one that still works because that whole mirror apparatus is very finicky. Intex's failure here, you know, it's coming at a time where this whole handheld thing is kind of beginning to fall apart. The next generation of video game consoles are about to appear, and it's going to render a lot of this VFD stuff or this more complex LED stuff kind of unnecessary. This early period, you kind of define it first with the Mattel handheld simplistic kind of LED games with the card games and the baseball and the bowling and the football and whatever. Then you have this brief period of the VFD games where concepts like Gramble and Frogger and Pac-Man are, are being done by Japanese companies and American companies like Coleco and Intex. At that point, then the market kind of goes dead. However, there is a third category of game that comes into existence in this time period that we will also have to talk about, but we're going to save that for the second episode, because as we'll see, these developments lead directly to that all-time classic handheld system, the Game Boy. So in episode two, we are going to consider the rise of LCD games, the rise of Nintendo as a major consumer electronics company, and the dawn of the Game Boy and its many failed competitors. So this has been a wild ride. The first episode in our epic and quite epic handheld history, we've taken it from the beginning, from calculators, which you need to think, why? Why would calculators even play into this? Alex just told you why. We go all the way up into how that technology comes into some of the earliest games, earliest electronic games, and then all the way into primitive video games where you have actual video going on and then this scary, scary monstrosity involving mirrors and red LEDs. We'll have to continue the story later or in about 20 minutes. Next time <laughs> on They Create World. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. You can also help by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. So much editing, so 
much editing. If you're listening to this, the raw recording was two and a half hours. This thing is down to about an hour 30, hour 35. That's a lot to rip out. And I have two more of these. 